Thank you, folks, for leading us in song this morning. Good morning. Welcome to the People's Church. Great to see you all. A little bit of reverb there. If you have been following the reading plan, we're working our way through the first nine chapters of Luke at the moment. If you've been following that plan, uh, you will have read Luke chapter 1, verse 39 through to verse 80. That's to the end of the chapter. Ruth, maybe just transition to the next slide. The clicker doesn't seem to be picking this up, just to give us that reference. Just to say, if you want to read along, we're, we've only just got out of the first chapter. The reading plan can be found in the literature holder in the foyer if you want to read along. If you have read along this week, uh, you will have read a, a portion of Scripture um, where it gives us a little bit more detail about Elizabeth and Zechariah, and we thought a little bit about that particular couple last week. It gives us the information about the birth of their son, John the Baptist, and later on in the series, we'll, we'll take one of our sermons to look at the role and the significance of John the Baptist in the story of Jesus and, and how it might relate to our roles as contemporary followers of Jesus. But perhaps most famously in Luke's first chapter, he includes a song from Mary, the mother of Jesus. You might know it as the Magnificat, particularly if you've come from other uh, church traditions that really emphasize Mary and her role in the Gospels in the life of Jesus. And what she says and sings here right at the beginning, we're going to read those verses. If you've got your Bible, then do follow my reading. I'm going to read from uh, chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. Uh, the version that I'm reading from is a new international Version. So if you want to, to turn to that, either in your paper Bibles or perhaps uh, the Bibles you have on your phone, do so now. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 56. And before we jump into the reading itself, let's just quieten ourselves as we ask the Lord by the power of His Spirit and the Spirit that breathed this Word into existence, Lord, that You would speak to us through it this day. We'd ask it humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mary's song. It, it probably would be better if, if I sung it for you this morning, but I'm, I'm not going to do that there. But if at home you want to go and read the Magnificat, if you want to put a little tune to it, it, it really does add to the reading. When I was reading through it during the week, entirely by myself, I wasn't subjecting anybody to it, but I tried to get a little bit of a, a beat to it just to capture some of the joyousness that's in the song, but I'm not going to do that to you this morning. And, and the Lord's already answered that prayer, hasn't He, by me restraining myself. But this is, what, this is what Mary sings, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has been mindful of the humble state of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary, who sung this song with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mom, well, we're told Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months and then returned home. We did mention uh, last week and the week before a couple of the different themes that become apparent in the Gospel of, of Luke. And one of them, and we read it into the Gospel of Acts as well, is the prominent role that women and children play in the Gospel and in the early church. And one of the things that I love about this opening um, chapter of Luke is that the first in-depth theological statement that we have in this gospel comes from a teenage girl singing a song. <laughs> and I think that there's a significance in that. The first, the first passage of Scripture that begins to delve into the depth of Israel's biblical belief and history in God, we find it in a teenage girl singing a song with her cousin. <laughs> and I just think that that is so, so beautiful. And when we look into the song, we actually see that this, that, that this young girl, Mary, knows her stuff. <laughs> she has obviously been schooled in Israel's rich biblical understanding. We could go into the, the song and we could see how she name-checks patriarchs, including Abraham. In, in, the, in the weave of the song itself, we, we get a mention of kings and prophets and psalms in her lyrics. And I say that just again to remind us and to, and to try and keep your eyes opened out and your ears opened as you begin to work your way through Luke, his emphasis on the role and the prominence of women in the Jesus movement. But, but, but Mary here for us, she depicts the, the big story of God and his salvation as the moment approaches when God would fulfill his promises, the promises that he had told to priests and prophets and kings of long ago. But Luke, and this is a, another little thing to, to keep an eye out for. Luke is telling the story in big, broad brushstrokes here at the beginning. He's, he's laying out the major themes of what he's going to go on and talk about and write about and teach about. But Luke will always endeavor to link the big story of salvation that God is telling about God, revealed to us in Jesus. But this salvation will always link to the personal hopes and fears of ordinary individual people. We have to watch out for this here as it begins. This great big gospel that's going to put everything right begins to put things right in individual lives. And of course, that's not a surprise for us, isn't it? Because we have partaken of that same salvation. <laughs> when we have been saved, it's not just necessarily that we have come to believe orthodox belief about Jesus and what he reveals to us about God, but we know that God attends to the details of our lives. Salvation has, has a real lived, outworked experience in our lives, putting that which has went wrong, dealing with our character, flaws, and faults. And we see here that God's salvation is re revealed to ordinary individual people like Mary. 
And as that is revealed to her personally, relationally, we can see that it leads to great personal joy. (laughs) Again, if you attend to this passage of Scripture as a song, you can feel the joyousness in that song. But today I want to just press the pause button, and I want to rewind ever so slightly to a really, really important verse that precedes Mary's song, and pay a little bit of attention to what Luke, I think, maybe wants to say to us through him. We didn't pick this up last week. Of course, Mary did make an appearance in the portion of Scripture that we were reading last week, but Luke chapter 1 and verse 38, after the angel, after the angel has visited Mary, she's He has told her the news that she's to be pregnant and to give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. This is what she says. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And here at the very, very beginning of the gospel, Luke has given us an example of discipleship in action. Note the contrast between Zechariah and Mary. We thought about Zechariah last week when he queried and quizzed the angel. He was struck dumb. But, but Mary, not a priest, not yet fully formed, responds in a way that models discipleship following Jesus for, well, ever after. I came across a a phrase in another book that I'm reading at the moment that stopped me in my tracks. Do you ever read something and and something of the, the, the nature of it grips you personally? It means something to you. It puts its finger on something that perhaps you need to pay attention to. And this was the, the phrase that I, that I read um, in, in one of the books that I'm reading at the moment, prayerless striving. Something about that phrase that stopped me, that that made me stop what I was reading and attend to something that was going on in my mind and heart in response to hearing that phrase, prayerless striving. I don't really know if I need to explain what that is. I have a guess that you would understand it, but it's the idea that sometimes we go about our lives with loads and loads of activity, trying to make things happen, but little or no prayer that underpins all that effort and energy. And I think in in our world, in its more general sense, in our Western world, I see a lot of prayerless striving going on. In a world that has lost connection with faith, in a world that has lost connection with faith communities, in a world that has lost connection with the belief in a God who loves us and cares for us, in a world in which there are many, many people who don't know who they are or whom they belong to. I think that much of what goes on in our world could be described as prayerless striving. And I see this all around when I think about the big issues that are making the headlines in our papers nowadays. When I think about the the, the small stuff that gets into people's personal lives and blights it and robs the joy. Think about, we live in a world and we're a part of that there where people think and know what is best and go about pursuing that 
without any reference to, to God, without much direction or emphasis upon what he might be looking to say, what his desired will might be for those situations. And when I say that, I don't just look out there. <laughs> In the same breath, I have to kind of close my eyes and look inward because I am painfully aware that the temptation to live a life of prayerless striving is something that is at work in me. <laughs> I am so often daily tempted to get on with life, the tasks at hand, the challenges that arise, to pursue what I want or what I think might be best without reference to God. <laughs> and I have had to train myself and discipline myself in order just to sometimes hit the pause button, stop, stop striving in order to create the space for God to remind me who I am and who I belong to. Here's the thing, part of the gospel, part of the strength and the potency of the gospel is that it tells you who you are. And even more important than that, perhaps even better than that, it tells you who you belong to. And when you understand that you belong to the Lord, when you have that identity formed, it leads to a great liberation in life. And I see this worked out in Mary's prayer. So much that was beyond her comprehension, and yet she knew who she was. What did she say? I am the Lord's servant. <laughs> There's plenty of prayerless striving going on in the first century world in which Mary lived. And I think that within that context, her prayer was quite remarkable. I think that her prayer in our mouths, in our hearts, and in our minds can be equally remarkable in our day and age. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I'm going to make a little bit of a, a guess here. I think that this prayer gives us an indication into the type of disciple that Mary was. And I think that this prayer in the mouth of Mary gives us an indication of the kind of influence and impact she had upon her son Jesus. This prayer was not only formative for Mary, I think it was formative for Jesus also. Let me make a little bit of a claim to a, another text. We looked at Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane a number of weeks ago, and we can see in Jesus' prayer in the garden on the eve of his death, what did we hear him pray then? Not my will, but yours be done. We hear in that prayer echoes of Mary's here at the beginning of Luke's gospel. Not my will, but yours be done. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. <laughs> I think it's highly probable that this prayer was learnt by Jesus from his mother and prayed by him all the days of his life. And I think that there was something in this prayer that helped Jesus resist the temptation towards prayerless striving, of ambitious self-seeking, of resisting the temptation towards coercion or manipulation. 
from finding another path, and we see the battle going on in Jesus in Gethsemane. Is there another way to go than the one laid out for me? And yet he submits. We could have substituted Mary's prayer right into Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wouldn't be out of place, would it? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Jesus knew who he was, and Jesus knew whom he belonged to. So did Mary. And it's born in this prayer. There's two things that I I want to, to say about this this morning. And the first is perhaps the most obvious point. We, he, we see here in this, in this short vignette of, of Mary, her encounter with the angel, going on to spend three months with um, her, her, her cousin Elizabeth, the song of praise and joy. We're, we're getting to see a little bit more than just Mary in a snapshot. We get a sense of who she is, don't we? The type of young woman she is. And I think that what we see here is the power of a mother modeling a life of prayerful submission to the Lord. I think it's quite a profound thought that even Jesus was provided with a devout mother. (laughs) In our tradition, we don't tend to think too much about the role of Mary, but even Jesus was given the provision of a devout mother. for a mother to model a prayer-filled life. And I simply want to say, may that be an encouragement to all of you who are mothers, that there is power and potency. And not just in the biological sense, to be encouraged that there are those of you who take on mothering roles. (laughs) Read yourself into the story. There is power and there is potency in a mother modeling a life of prayerful submission to the Lord. But, but, the, but the bigger point that I want to, to make today is this. If we want to resist the temptation to prayerless striving in our own lives, then there's no better example to follow than the one that Mary lays out for us here. So let's take a little closer look at this prayer today. We see in the prayer itself that it is structured by one noun and one verb. Let's take a look at the noun first of all. Mary identifies herself as a servant. That's the noun. I am the Lord's servant. And I love it that at this moment of high drama and climax, right at the beginning of the gospel story, that Mary prays herself into her truest and deepest identity. (laughs) Mary did did that, we can do that as well. And when we pray with Mary and take the time to pray with Mary, we discover, we discover our truest identity. We are servants. Consider Mary's position at this moment in her life. She has just received her call to the most honored vocation and place imaginable in the kingdom of God, to be the mother of Jesus. doesn't really come much bigger and better than that in the gospel of the kingdom, does it? You are the mother of Jesus. (laughs) 
And yet at that moment, instinctively, prayerfully, in light of the honor bestowed upon her, she understands herself to be first and foremost a servant. I think this is profound, profound theology that we are pushing up against this morning. The more exalted we become, and Mary understood this explicitly, instinctively, the more exalted we become, the more prominent that we might be, (laughs) the more important we might become in the economy of the kingdom of God, the more servant-like we become. (laughs) That's the way it works. In fact, Jesus says, it's right to have ambition to be the greatest in the kingdom, but if you're going to fulfill that ambition, get low, (laughs) become a servant, become like the last and the least. Mother and son alike prayed themselves into becoming servants. Servanthood is something that we very rarely choose. We're not always preformed as servants. It's something that we, we can become and we are to become as followers of Jesus. Day by day, week by week, month by month, as Jesus' identity as God among us was filled out detail by detail, I think he prayed himself into servanthood to the point where it was instinctive for him. He didn't need to think about it anymore. And I think his mother taught him that. It shaped his life and the way he led it. And it shaped his teaching to his disciples and those who have come after him. So we could read in Matthew 20, where he's teaching his disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them? Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant was a prayed identity for Mary. Servant was a prayed identity for Jesus. It must be and must become a prayed identity for us. So we've thought about the noun servant. Second, the verb that appears in Mary's prayer. May it be to me. It's actually only one word in Greek, genoita. Do you want to say that this morning? You learned a little Greek this morning, genoita. May it be to me, genoita, according to your word. It's only one word in the Greek. And by means of this verb in Mary's mouth, she prays God's action into her life. Let it be to me, according to your word. Oftentimes, we need to do this, don't we? Do you ever wrestle with something the Lord's asking you to do? Have you ever needed to hear it three, four, five times before you actually follow through on it? And oftentimes, we need to take this prayer, may it be to me, and pray God's known action and will into our life until we accept it. Because oftentimes it takes a little time. 
But I think in this particular instance, the crucial thing about this particular verb is that it, it does not refer to anything that Mary will do. <laughs> and I think that that's quite crucial. Mary is submitting to an action that she has no responsibility for. <laughs> Rather, it is to what God will do and said he will do that Mary submits God's action, God's word, God's revealed will in her life. And in doing so, she demonstrates a remarkable level of maturity and prayerless striving. <laughs> she doesn't strive against or with the command. Quite simply prays, may it be to me according to your word. <laughs> I have to say, it's a good thing that I wasn't asked to be the mother of Jesus. Now, that's, that's a deeply, deeply disturbing thought on any number of levels, and, and I don't want you to, to ponder it too deeply this morning, but I'm trying to read myself into the text as a disciple to imagine what my response might have been should I have been in Mary's position. And I have to say, I would have required a little bit more information from the angel if I had that encounter. Uh, this would include, but it wouldn't be limited to the following. First of all, I would have needed a bit of a timetable here. Now, I know babies take nine months to, from conception to arrival. I don't know what that was meant to be. <laughs> I, I know that, but I'm, I'm talking about more of a timetable when I get to, to, to put in my contribution, particularly the deadline for me to come back to the angel with my decision as whether or not I'm going to do this. I'll need a little time to think this one through. So I would have needed a, a timetable. The second one would have been a budget. A budget would have been very, very helpful at this point. How much is this going to cost? I hear babies are quite expensive and getting more expensive by the, the day and the week. So I would have needed not a precise figure, but some kind of broad guidelines from the angel. Come on, give me a little bit of budget here and add a little bit 10% on for contingency. Might be twins. <laughs> I would have required a needed agreement to a follow-up conversation. Is there a more efficient way to execute this plan? <laughs> I can imagine myself saying this here. I would have said, look, let me go away and think about what you've outlined for me, because I probably have some thoughts that might support it, might, might make it a little bit better. <laughs> Thank the Lord that he chose someone else. But having submitted to the angel's plans, if I were to do that, well, my personality type is the type where I would have entered into my own mind, thoughts, and worked out everything in advance. Now, if you're like me, that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Some of you are just much more spontaneous. You give no thought to anything. You just do things instinctively. And, and nine times out of ten, you're quite brilliant. <laughs> I can't operate like that. It's not necessarily a bad thing to be like that. But if you are like me and have that personality type, then those type of thoughts need to be submitted to the Lord. There can be good things and good personality traits with that significant caveat. When those thoughts 
and detailed plannings that you have worked out, that they are submitted to the Lord, that they don't lead to prayerless striving, they can be good things. I have to say that in my own life, when I resist the temptation towards prayerless striving, when I follow Mary and pray, may it be to me according to your word. When I take the time to do that, more often than not, I find that God comes and fills the space that I vacate. I find that he, in his own time, rewards the submission that's required to do that. Again, in his time, but it's often quite saved me a little bit of bother, and probably those around me a significant, a lot of bother as well. He rewards that submission. When we resist the urge to strive onwards without submissive prayer, well, that does incur some cost. It requires sometimes suffering and holding attention. Sometimes it requires an obedience that makes no sense to you. But ultimately, we base our submissive and prayerful submission on who we are, servants of the Lord, and who we belong to, who we're owned by, that same Lord. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I'm going to invite the band to come and lead us in our closing song. But as they do so, may we just mark these moments just by considering what, if anything, the Lord has been saying to us personally through this message today. Are there aspects or elements in our, in our own lives that have been caught up with prayerless striving? Have we forgotten who we are and who we belong to? What might God be asking you and I to submit to? Inevitably, those things will be in operation in our life. Inevitably, there will be things that we need to submit to because we need to. When we struggle, when we fall sometimes into disobedience, when we, when we struggle to remain faithful, when we struggle to be obedient to that which the Lord has said, well, I think that there is strength for us in Mary's prayer, and I think that we're invited to pray with her. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And I'm going to invite us just to, to read that prayer out three times together. Not that there's magic in this here, but just to allow the words to do their work as we form into a prayer in, in our own mouths. So can we do that together? Submitting to that which the Lord is asking us to as his servants. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said.
I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Hear our prayer, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.